Can a machine be certified today that's connected to the internet? It is more complicated than that. There's different ways, like modems and things that are attached to machines, so. So, yes, a machine could be certified that's connected to the well, internet. I don't know why I came here tonight. Got it, head of the I EAC. Right. No, it's not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, hi. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, out in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com. Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Uh, Hey, Desi Doyen. Yes. You know what this is not a great time for? Okay, what? <laughs> it is not a great time for the nation's only federal agency tasked with setting standards for the certification of electronic voting systems. That would be the EAC, the Election Assistance Commission. Not a great time for them to be releasing new certification standards for voting systems that allow for the use of wireless modems in them. I would argue, in fact, it's never a good time for that. I think I would agree with you on that one. But I got to tell you right now, with all of the hacking and all of the ransomware attacks from abroad and the suspicions about electronic voting and tabulation systems here at home, it seems a really, really ill-considered idea to make it easier, not harder, to attack voting systems and, by the way, to make it harder, not easier For the public to know if our votes are actually counted as cast or if they have been changed somehow via modems inside of the nation's computer voting and tabulation systems. But that is what the U.S. EAC has just done. And worse, they did it after previously promising to ban wireless modems and Internet connectivity. But before they held secret meetings with the voting system vendors themselves, after uh, after which they unbanned the modems in the uh, in the uh, EAC's new certification guidelines. Now, thankfully, the EAC is being sued for all of that. As of yesterday, 
by the woman who discovered the EAC's secret meetings with the manufacturers that they're supposed to be regulating. Susan Greenhall of freespeechforpeople.org and voting systems expert Philip Stark of UC Berkeley who appeared on this show just a few weeks ago about something else entirely. Uh, He happens to sit on the advisory board at the EAC. Both Free Speech for People and Philip Stark are now suing the EAC. Good. Susan Greenhall will be joining us uh, shortly to explain this latest fine mess at the woeful EAC, which... If they hadn't been so crappy at their jobs for so many years, I might just call them tone deaf as to what is now going on in this country. But in truth, they have been in the pocket of the vendors they are supposed to be regulating for years. So Susan will join us shortly to explain her lawsuit just filed yesterday to force the EAC to restore their previously planned ban on insane wireless modems inside of voting systems and the secret meetings with vendors that helped remove the planned ban that she caught them doing. Anyway, <laughs> before we get there, uh, hey, were, were you wondering over the two weeks of 4th of July recess in Congress, whatever happened to that, to those two infrastructure packages amounting to about $4 trillion in spending that the Biden administration had been pushing so hard previously? called the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. Well, one, based on the American Jobs Plan for traditional infrastructure like roads and bridges, that had been pared down in bipartisan Senate negotiations before the holiday when a group of so-called moderate senators from both parties agreed on nearly $600 billion in new spending in their bipartisan compromise. The rest of the stuff that Republicans did not want to include in that package, much of the stuff in the American Families Plan for so-called human infrastructure like health care, family leave, child care, etc., That was being worked on by the Democratic caucus in the Budget Committee in the Senate and in a few other committees, but the key one being the Budget Committee for the moment. On that, as of Tuesday night, according to top Senate Democrats, they have now worked out a deal that would amount to about $4 trillion in spending all told when both of these packages are combined Uh, That second one, however, by Democrats only, will need to pass via budget reconciliation rules in the U.S. Senate, which means that only a simple majority of 50 votes would be needed. No need to overcome a Republican filibuster requiring 10 GOP uh, senators to come on board. That's what the smaller bipartisan package is for. That's if the Republicans don't pull their support from it as some are suggesting that they might. But on uh, on Tuesday night, <clears throat> not long after we got off air, Axios sent out this somewhat, um, all right, very misleading alert email. Axios alert, Senate Democrats announced $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package in which they added, why it matters, the price tag comes in far below the $6 trillion figure that Senator Bernie Sanders and other progressive Democrats have pushed for. Well, that sounds disappointing. It sure does. Sounds bad for progressives. They and Sanders uh, must be very disappointed about that. But as noted, 
Axios was rather m very misleading in that alert, as NBC noted in their much less misleading coverage on the same announcement. Senate Democratic uh, leaders announced an agreement on Tuesday to advance a $3.5 trillion spending plan to finance a major expansion of the nation's economic safety net, including for Medicare and major new climate initiatives. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the $3.5 trillion plan would be in addition to the $579 billion in new spending in the bipartisan infrastructure agreement. He said the deal would include a, quote, robust expansion of Medicare. That would include new benefits. Benefits, by the way, that Bernie Sanders has long championed, like dental and vision and hearing coverage, along with major funding that Desi Doyen has long championed <laughs> for clean energy. If we pass this, Schumer declared, this is the most profound change to help American families in generations. And as far as I can tell, if they pass that, he is right. Schumer, who noted President Biden would be joining the Senate Democratic Caucus for lunch at the Senate on Wednesday to talk about all of this, described the plan as wonderful and one that, quote, affects American families in a profound way. More than anything that's happened in generations, Schumer told reporters. He said, we are very proud of this plan. Uh, we know we have a long road to go, but we're going to get this done for the sake of making average Americans lives a whole lot better. Make no mistake. This is very encouraging news. It is. It's a. It's actually a really good package. If, that's if, if all of this can be pulled off. Now, True. Virginia's centrist Democratic Senator Mark Warner, he's a member of the Budget and Finance, and Finance Committees. Uh, he's also a member of that group of bipartisan moderates who uh, negotiated the smaller uh, bipartisan package to be passed, in theory, through regular order in the Senate. He said... Uh, the new uh, plan, the reconciliation plan to be passed only by the Democrats would be, quote, fully paid for, meaning they won't be adding to the deficit, but rather uh, raising taxes somewhere and or cutting elsewhere. By the way, adding to the deficit is not a terrible thing, but for whatever reason, uh, Senate mod uh, moderates insist. think it would be, yeah. Yeah, they uh, insist on everything has to be paid for, even though economic data show that infrastructure really does pay for itself in generating long-lasting economic benefits. But that's not the world we live in. Those are not the Democrats we get. No, here in the uh, world we live in, uh, the agreement will reportedly... Uh, raise taxes, but it will prohibit taxes, tax increases on small businesses and people making under $400,000. That would keep uh, Biden's long vow to raise taxes only on the wealthy and large corporations to not raise taxes on those who are making less than $400,000 a year. The announcement points to a challenge for Democrats, however. They will have to agree on a massive bill financed with new tax revenue and pass it through razor-thin congressional majorities in both houses because there is no realistic hope of winning Republican support for this much larger package. Democrats can afford to lose just four votes 
from Democrats in the House and still pass this thing, and they have zero margin for error in the 50-50 Senate. As to Axios's suggestion that, oh, progressives may not like this plan because, as they warned, quote, the price tag comes in far below the $6 trillion figure that Senator Bernie Sanders and other progressive Democrats had pushed for. Well, Bernie Sanders, the budget committee chair, told reporters last night, quote, this is, in our view, a pivotal moment in American history. He said, what this legislation says, among many, many other things, is that those days are gone. The wealthy and the large corporations are going to start paying their fair share of taxes so that we can protect the working families in this country. Boy, he sounds disappointed in this package, doesn't he? <laughs> so Sanders disagrees with Axios's interpretation of what Sanders feels about this. <laughs> yes, apparently. They should have just asked Sanders. Uh, the agreement, as NBC notes, amounts to a decrease from Sanders' $6 trillion proposal, uh, but is this is an attempt to achieve consensus in a diverse Democratic Party with a host of competing interests uh, in the committee that Bernie Sanders chairs. Senate Democratic leaders hope to advance both the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which would require at least 10 of the Republicans who negotiated that deal to actually stick with it. We'll see if they do. And the party line budget reconciliation bill that would all hopefully uh, begin moving, be introduced officially this month before Congress leaves for the August recess. The actual reconciliation bill itself has yet to be written, but the framework is now there and it's agreed upon by everyone, at least on the budget committee, from moderate Senator Warner, uh, Mark Warner of Virginia, to progressive Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont on that uh, key budget committee. As the Times reports, however, it was not yet clear if conservative Democrats like Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, if they have yet signed off on this blueprint, we shall see. But again, we don't yet have all of the details of the plan, but we do have the framework. According to the Times, New York Times, uh, Chuck Schumer said the resolution would call for an expansion of Medicare to provide money for dental, vision, and hearing benefits for the first time. This was a priority for Sanders. It also is likely to extend a temporary provision in the president's pandemic relief that greatly expands subsidies for Americans pur purchasing health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. One of the largest health measures since the Obamacare law was passed more than a decade ago. So... If you were one of the folks who buys your health care insurance via one of the Obamacare exchanges and you just got you a huge decrease in your monthly premium costs, well, this bill will continue those lower rates beyond the one-year time frame of the emergency pandemic legislation that was passed by Biden and the Democrats earlier this year, again, with no Republican votes on that bill. You know, that's the one that sent you a $1,400 check and is now set to send out up to $300 per child to families every single month. So this bill would also extend, this new bill would also extend that pandemic relief provision as well if it's adopted. As the Budget Committee was developing this framework, the Senate Finance Committee has also been drafting tax provisions to help pay for the spending uh, they include a restructuring of the International Business Tax Code, 
which would tax overseas profits more heavily. This is an effort to discourage U.S. corporations from moving profits abroad. That's a good idea. They would also help collapse dozens of tax benefits aimed at energy companies, especially oil and gas firms, into just three categories focused instead on renewable energy sources and energy efficiency. They will start, uh, you know, giving these benefits to renewable, clean energy sources and uh, award energy efficiency instead of just giving away money to fossil fuel companies that are killing the planet. In other words, giving away subsidies to fossil fuel companies to pollute all of us for free. Correct. So that would be good as well. Uh, Money is expected to be devoted to a series of climate provisions after progressive Democrats warned they would not support that bipartisan bill unless there was a promise of further climate action in the partisan reconciliation bill. That is supposed to now be a part of the Democrats' plan. We will look forward to the details on that, however. But again, they cannot afford to lose more than four Democrats in the House, so I would expect that whatever is in here will have to get the support of House progressives somehow. So the uh, the bipartisan infrastructure framework is expected to total $1.2 trillion dollars according to the Times, though about half of that amount is simply the expected continuation of existing programs. But $600 billion in new spending in that bipartisan plan combined with the funds that are already approved in the pandemic relief plan and now the pending infrastructure plan. New York Times notes this could be, quote, transformative steering government largesse toward poor and middle-class families in amounts, they say, that have not been seen since the New Deal. Since the New Deal. Imagine that. So, yes, I see this, uh, at least given what we know right now, to be very, very good news indeed if the Democrats can pull this off. Good news for the Democrats and, frankly, more importantly, for the country. But if they can pull this off with both the partisan reconciliation plan and the bipartisan deal, it will be, as Joe Joe Biden might say, a BFD. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, And I would add exactly what Democrats need to do if they hope to have a chance of retaining both the House and the Senate in next year's midterm elections. You know, pass stuff that people like, because all of this stuff, whether Republicans vote for it or not in Congress, all of this stuff is wildly popular across the country with Democrats and Republicans alike. So, yeah. Keep going, Democrats. Don't let us stop you. And Joe Manchin, please don't screw this one up. Uh, Speaking of next year's midterm elections, uh, why, oh, why would the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission be meeting in secret with voting machine vendors to allow the continuing use of wireless modems in the nation's voting systems, especially now with so many questions, legitimate or otherwise, about the veracity of last year's elections. It kind of seems like they're playing with fire here. That, of course, is the EAC. Either they're playing with fire again because they're corrupt or because they're stupid. Maybe both. I don't know. (laughs) But our guest coming up after the break is suing to stop them. 
after catching them in those secret meetings with the vendors they're supposed to be regulating. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. really are playing with fire welcome back to the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com so you may have heard that there have been some questions about the accuracy of the results in the 2020 presidential election in recent months not necessarily legitimate questions not actually based on any kind of real independently verifiable evidence but questions nonetheless Those questions, legitimate or otherwise, have resulted in calls for post-election forensic audits all over the country to determine if the results of the presidential election were accurate or somehow stolen or changed or hacked in some fashion. Again, there is, to date, no legitimate, independently verifiable evidence to support those claims in any way, claims coming from Donald Trump supporters who have been lied to about them by Donald Trump and his supporters, but without the ability for the public to oversee, to easily oversee elections and results, it's actually quite easy to make such assertions using evidence like claims that may sound plausible, especially to partisans hoping to believe that they didn't really lose an election. Unfortunately, given the non-transparent computerized voting and tabulation systems that we now use in pretty much the entirety of the country, the public can have a difficult time knowing one way or another whether results actually are accurate. Making matters worse, the one woefully underfunded federal agency that is supposed to oversee technical and security standards for those voting and tabulation systems used in every state around the country, the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, or EAC, well, that agency has been less than forthcoming with the public about how these systems actually work or don't, what flaws and vulnerabilities they may have. And according to longtime critics, critics like me, in fact, the EAC has been far too close with the voting system vendors themselves, the vendors that they are ostensibly supposed to be regulating rather than uh, with voting system and security experts and the public at large. This has been going on uh, for a very long time with this agency, pretty much since they were created by the Help America Vote Act of 2002 in the wake of 2000's disastrous presidential election in Florida that year. That federal law, HAVA, invested billions into electronic voting systems around the country and tasked the EAC with, among other things, creating standards for use of those systems by states who could then choose to follow, voluntarily follow the federal guidelines for such systems or not as developed by the EAC. But the technical guidelines called the Voluntary Voting System Guidelines, or VVSG, have always been rather opaque and confusing, and before this year, they hadn't even been updated since about 2005, which, while just over 15 years ago, is actually like a millennium in computer time, given all the changes to computer systems and to the types of attacks on them over all of those years. 
One controversial element of the voting and tabulation systems in use for the past nearly two decades are the modems that are included in many of those systems, according to uh, cybersecurity experts. Modems which make those systems particularly vulnerable to hackers looking to disrupt elections and or change results. The EAC and other federal officials at the same time have been less than clear with the public about the ability for those systems to be accessed and or hacked via the Internet, as our friend election transparency advocate Jenny Cohn made clear in a short video that she released prior to last year's presidential election. Here is part of that video. In 2016, people in positions of trust told us it would be almost impossible for hackers to change the outcome of a national election because voting machines supposedly never connect to the Internet. Those things are not connected to the Internet. I know of no jurisdiction where voting machines are connected to the Internet. This makes it nearly impossible for a remote hacker. Voting machines are not connected to the Internet. Those are not connected. Voting machines themselves are not connected to the Internet. They were wrong. Election security experts say that virtually all electronic vote tallies can be hacked through the Internet. Moreover, many precinct ballot scanners include wireless modems that connect the scanners and the county central tabulators to the Internet. The states of Wisconsin, Florida, Michigan, Illinois, and Rhode Island include these wireless modems. Yes, they do. And making matters worse, the EAC has simply misled Congress during actual hearings on these issues. Some might say lied to them, but it's unclear if the uh, EAC representatives even knew better themselves about modems and Internet connectivity in voting systems. Here, for example, is uh, then EAC Commissioner Christy McCormick in 2019 answering a direct question about this matter from Maine's independent senator, Angus King. Can a machine be certified today that's connected to the Internet under the prior standard or the standard that we're operating under? It is more complicated than that. There's different ways, like modems and things that are attached to machines. So, But clearly best practices are paper backup, no connection to the Internet. Senator, if you want, uh, I just got passed a note from the staff to assure that the VVSG does not allow for Internet connectivity. The Well, the VVSG, again, the Voluntary Voting System Guidelines, does not allow for Internet connectivity? Well... Whether EAC Commissioner McCormick knew at the time, I can't tell you. But the EAC, the EAC staff that handed her that information, they certainly knew better, didn't they? In any event, the fact is that the original 15-year-old guidelines for voting systems did not bar either Internet connectivity or the use of wireless modems in voting and tabulation systems. But the good news is that last year, after public meetings and consultations with the EAC's Expert Technical Advisory Board, new standards called the VVSG 2.0 included a ban on wireless modems in voting systems certified to that new standard. At least they did at the beginning of last year when the draft standards were made available for public comment. But by the end of last year, after, as our guest discovered, secret meetings between the EAC and the voting machine vendors, the wireless modem ban was killed from the new standards just before the final guidelines were officially approved by the commissioners. And now our friends at the indispensable nonpartisan good government watchdog group freespeechforpeople.org 
are suing the EAC for this seemingly secret switcheroo on the final voting system guidelines adopted earlier this year. As AP reported on Tuesday night, key elements of the first federal technology standards for voting equipment in 15 years should be scrapped because language that would have banned the devices from connecting to the Internet was dropped after private meetings held with voting system manufacturers. The lawsuit against the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission filed in UC, uh, in U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., claims those meetings should have been open and that changes to the draft, st draft standards should have been shared with the commission's advisory and standards boards. The lawsuit seeks to have those changes set aside. The standards approved in February by the EAC commissioners did not include the draft language that would have banned wireless technology from voting equipment under federal certification guidelines. Voting security experts, according to AP, say the machines will be vulnerable to hacking without such a ban. The EAC brazenly flouted its legal obligation to adhere to a transparent process, choosing instead to invite the manufacturers into private meetings so they could alter the voting system standards to ease requirements and benefit the manufacturers, said Susan Greenhall of Free Speech for People. The group who filed the lawsuit, along with University of California Berkeley computer scientist and post-election audit expert Philip Stark, Stark sits on the commission's advisory board, the EAC's advisory board. Professor Stark, as regular broadcast listeners may recall, was a guest on this program just a few weeks back to discuss the post-election forensic audit that he helped oversee in Wyndham, New Hampshire, where it was discovered that optical scan tabulators had mistallied hundreds of votes on hand-marked paper ballots, not due to hacking, but because the 20-year-old systems used in New Hampshire misread folds in the absentee ballots as if they were actual votes. And while I had hoped to have both Philip and Susan Greenhall on the show today, he is off on a much-deserved vacation as the suit was filed on Tuesday, but we are delighted to have Susan Greenhall, who discovered the secret meetings between the EAC and the vendors in the first place, here to explain all of this. Susan is a longtime election integrity and transparency expert and advocate who now serves as senior advisor on election security at freespeechforpeople.org. Oh, Susan Greenhall, welcome back to the broadcast. Hi, Brad. Great to be back. Great to have you here. Uh, so you'll have to sort of stand in for Philip Stark's excellent uh, technical knowledge here today, Susan. Uh, I know you're up to the task, however, after all of these years you have worked trying to bring oversight and transparency to the nation's voting system. So do I understand this issue correctly? The EAC had planned to ban wireless modems in voting systems. It all looked good. Then they secretly met with the vendors and then changed those requirements for the first update to technical standards for these systems in 15 years. Is that sort of the, the nut of what's going on here? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I, I will say it, it actually isn't, I'll just be a little bit little bit um, detail-oriented. It isn't the first update. The ACID actually did do another update to the standards, but as you have so eloquently described, they are very close to the vendors, 
And though they've had this other version that was adopted in 2015, which is more Mm. strenuous, Mm -hmm. the EAC has essentially let the vendors decide, do you want to certify to the ones from 2005, or do you want to certify to the ones to 2015? And guess which ones they choose. (laughs) So even though there are more uh, recent standards, they are not in practice used in any way, and the EAC is not requiring certification Mm -hmm. to those standards. They're allowing the vendors to still certify to 2005. But yes, when they started to update again, mm-hmm. we were going to get the newer ones updated for 2021. The initial draft that was created with a great deal of public input that had vendors opportunity, vendors had the opportunity to provide their input mm-hmm. um, through a series of public working groups that went on for a couple of years, as well as other processes that are mandated according to the Help America Vote Act and other requirements that it's in the Federal Administrator Procedures Act. And they had gone through all of that. And what had come out after a lot of guidance had come from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically on this question of permitting wireless devices capable of networking to the Internet in the voting systems, um, and NIST had, National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, had given a really pretty scary presentation saying that this can allow remote access for nation-state actors, and it seemed to button up the problem and get everybody on the same page that this should be banned, and that was how the the guidelines were drafted mm-hmm. and how we kind of thought they were baked in at that point, which was the beginning of uh, 2020. Um, and mm-hmm. then... We found out several months later that the EAC let slip that it was meeting on a weekly basis with the vendors in private meetings, um, which were not put on their website, not put on Twitter. Nobody knew about these meetings um, to get the vendors' direct uh, non-public input on how the guidelines would be developed. And as I understand it, and as your, uh, your complaint argues, These meetings with the EAC, with the experts, with the advisory board, and indeed with the vendors, they are supposed to all be public meetings. The entire process for developing these standards is supposed to be public. Is that correct? That's right. The Help America Vote Act lays out a very, very specific set of of requirements of how this process is supposed to take place. And it's supposed to be made public. It's supposed to be put in the Federal Register, et cetera. There's supposed to be a minimum amount of time. The Board of Advisors, of which Philip Stark, Mm -hmm. um, our co-plaintiff, is a member. The Board of Advisors is supposed to get 90 days for the from the to uh, consider the draft standards and provide any comments um, as well. And the EAC went through that to a point, then started to do its secret um, machinations mm-hmm. made the changes and then didn't and then didn't provide didn't make anything public again until they dropped it a mere days before they voted on it and with I, the, the significant changes in it and as I understand it they dropped it because you Susan Greenhall caught them and and you know started asking for uh, documents <laughs> as far as what they were talking about what they were emailing about and and so forth what is the what is the reason that the EAC essentially gives now or gave uh, you know for doing away with the 
ban on wireless modems. I mean, given everything that we know now about, uh, well, foreign hacking, certainly concerns about domestic hacking. What in the world, what reason did they give to the public, at least, about doing away with that ban on wireless modems in these in these systems? So that's a funny question, because um, initially the EAC had said, well, it, it's, it's, it's not that big a change. And they had given a, uh, an interview to a reporter mm-hmm. about this, that, about the change being made, um, and acknowledged that there was a change and that, that initially the VVSG draft banned all devices from having any capability of connecting to the Internet. Mm-hmm. And then they put out a document and tried to say, that it was misinformation and that it had banned it all along and they just put in that clarifying language that, that or I'm sorry, that, that the, the way that it was drafted initially mm-hmm. permitted the wireless devices to be in the devices, to, to be in the voting machines as mm-hmm. long as they are disabled. But that's not the case. There's, there's too much evidence that contradicts it. But not only that, that the EAC, um, officers had actually acknowledged that to a reporter that it was a change. So they tried to go back and... They they tried to go back and say it was your fault. You didn't understand that they had said that originally, but that's not what they had said originally at all. Right, but they added specific language that says um, this specifically allows the inclusion of the devices. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. if that's what your language said all along, you wouldn't need to add that, I don't think. And AP reports that uh, agency leaders have defended the redrafted standard, saying the features that allow uh, voting machines to connect to the Internet must be disabled under the new rules. So apparently we shouldn't worry because they uh, say that the, the, you know, the modems have to be turned off while the voting systems are turned on. Now, I know that this is something that uh, Philip Stark would have a few thoughts on himself. But what is the problem with, uh, you know, requiring that these modems be disabled while voting is going on? Doesn't that take care of the problem? Um, no. In short, in short, no. So initially, when these when the standards were drafted with the um, input of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, they were um, crafted to require either physically removing the modem or wireless connectivity mm-hmm. device, or permanently disabling it physically, like you ripping out a wire mm-hmm. or um, t- taking out the antenna. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the language was changed to permit the system to be merely, or the wireless modems to be merely disabled by a software connection. Now, that's a problem because if you can disable by software, a hacker can re-enable by Mm -hmm. software. Mm -hmm. And it's, we don't even have to go back very far to know that this is a wholly insufficient solution because people who listen to broadcast may be familiar with a voting system called the WinVote, which is mm-hmm. was known as the notoriously most insecure voting system ever known <laughs> to man, um, which had wireless modems in it. And we found, or researchers found, that they could disable the application, the software application, for the wireless modem, but the radio remained on. So if you got within the radius you could find it on your phone and you could still connect to it <laughs> so we we don't we know very clearly that a software disable disabling by software 
is not enough. It, it's not what we should be doing. There's other problems, too, because if it's there, then there's likelihood that you might have vendors try to take advantage of that to upgrade software mm-hmm. via the wireless connection rather than doing it um, more uh, securely through um, a proper physical installation. Why uh, Why are the modems even there, Susan Greenhall? I know a lot of people ask, you know, it, it just seems like you're begging... You're begging for problems. You're begging for hackers. And uh, even if you don't get hackers, what you end up with is people who are suspicious. And I got to say, in in many cases, justifiably so, they're suspicious. They don't know these systems had modems. Were they hacked? Even in cases where they weren't, where they were secure, it, you know, adds concerns, uh, you know, about the results. And, you know, because you can't see whether a modem is actually working or not. So why even have them in the system in the first place, so my understanding is that there's there's two factions sort of driving this. One are the vendors that want to sell modems that transmit election night results from a polling location back to a county uh, election management system. We see this very frequently used in places like Florida, mm-hmm. um, and and as e- ESNS is one of the big um, sellers of that sort of technology. Um, that so that's one instance. The other uh, place where we're thinking that is driving this policy is that there are some vendors, like um, you may have heard of a vendor called Voting Works, that's model is based entirely on buying commercial off-the-shelf uh, hardware. Mm-hmm. There's a couple other vendors that are looking at using this too, and it's harder and harder to buy commercial off-the-shelf hardware that doesn't contain some sort of wireless chip or radio. So rather than go through what would, you know, cost some extra money to make sure that that's physically disabled, um, there's been an argument saying, well, we'll just uh, disable it with software. So we think that those are the two factions that are driving it, the, so the, the uni- uh, vendors that want to sell the, the commercial off the sh- or want to use commercial mm-hmm. off-the-shelf hardware. So uh, initially, those modems were, were for convenience, essentially, right? So you could get the results quickly to uh, county headquarters. They could mm-hmm. check them later uh, on paper if it existed, if hand-marked paper ballots existed. But uh, for election night reporting, for convenience, for the election officials, that was essentially why they were initially included in these systems and why some of the vendors uh, like ESNS, the big vendor, ESNS, uh, wants to include them now So because... They, they claim, oh, customers want them. Our counties want them. Our states want them so they can report on the results quickly. That's what this is all about for them? Uh, I, I, like I said, I think, it's, I think we have two driving factors, mm-hmm. and so that's one of them. Right. I know ESNS makes more money if they sell modems. We also know that, um, as you may have seen, that ESNS, um, for a long time was advertising its systems with modems in them as EAC certified, even though they, they weren't certified because they didn't meet whatever whatever requirements happened to be in the standards. They weren't even able to meet that. Mm-hmm. So they weren't EAC standard certified, but they ha- got their hands slapped for um, advertising, falsely advertising the systems as being federally certified yeah. after we raised it with EAC. Yeah, hand slap uh, at best. Yeah. In my experience... Uh, with the EAC, they have long been captured by the voting system vendors, really since their inception. 
uh, from the Help America Vote Act. Companies like Diebold back in the day, now ESNS, the largest company in the nation, now Dominion Voting Systems, which has come under scrutiny uh, falsely, by the way, by uh, Trump's MAGA mob. Uh, is is this simply a matter, uh, Susan, of, of you know just doing the vendor's business for them because the EAC has been captured by the industry that they're supposed to be overseeing? Uh, or, as I, I you know, I'll, I, I'm sure I will hear after the show from people something more nefarious going on here, uh, as I suspect some would accuse them of. Uh, I think it's just that the EAC um, relies too much on the vendors. The EAC doesn't have a, a very strong or, or deep resource of uh, staffers who are um, computer experts, uh, security experts who know a lot about it. In fact, their chief information security officer used to work for one of the voting system vendors for, I, I don't know, like 10 years or something like that. So um, th- rather than, and, and this is what we see often like playing out in a, a mini um, version in county, office, county election offices as well as at the AAC, the EAC relies on the vendors to get their technical information and expertise. So rather than um, being an independent um, source of information regarding the system, voting systems, mm-hmm. EAC is going to the vendors to ask them the questions and understand how the systems work. And, of course, the vendors aren't going to say, yeah, this is highly insecure. We shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> right. They're going to want to do what they want to do. So um, the EAC's um, counsel is, is the vendors. And I, I, think, wow. I think, you know, you're, that, that's how uh, I... I think I think we're what we're seeing going on. Um, you know, the vendors are not the only uh, people they can go to for technical advice. In fact, the EAC has its own technical advisory uh, committee or board, uh, which Philip Stark, uh, the co-plaintiff with Free Speech for People in this case, he is actually a member of the EAC's technical advisory board. So in one sense, I guess, uh, he's sort of suing himself here, uh, or at least the commission that he is a part of. Is there any concern about, is he is he allowed to do that? Can he, uh, as a commissioner, actually, or an advisor, I should say, uh, to the board, actually sue the, the EAC itself? Yeah, I just want to clarify, he's on the EAC's board of advisors. There's a technical... Ah. Technical Guidelines Development Committee, which is a different committee. Okay. He's not on that one. I just want to want to be clear. So he's on the um, board of the, advisors of the he's EAC. He's on the board of advisors. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So he, um, yes, there is precedent of advisory board members having to sue different um, entities. One of the most famous ones, people may recall, that uh, the Secretary of State of Maine, um, Matt Dunlap, sued the Trump President's Commission on Election Integrity that was formed to root out all the false voter fraud that Trump was alleging mm-hmm. in 2016 uh-huh. um, that accounted, you know, in his mind for why he lost the popular vote. It got disbanded because they found nothing and because they were concealing documents and doing mm-hmm. some other things that were not in accordance with the law. But that was a uh, another precedent. But yes, this is why Philip is, is bringing this. He has standing because he has, as I mentioned, certain privileges as a member of the Board of Advisors to have seen the um, voting system standards 90 days before they were adopted. And because the EAC was doing all of this 
sort of shady mm-hmm. business behind closed doors. They kept the changes to the document secret until nine days before they voted on it. They published it at the very last minute. They, they put a notice in the public register that they were going to vote on it two weeks before, which is required by law, but uh-huh. they didn't actually publish what they were voting uh-huh. on when they published it in the Federal Register. They waited a couple of days more, dropped it, and then, uh, you know, it was yep. not an opportunity for anyone to... Uh, have any input at that stage? And I got I, I got to get out here shortly, but I want to fit in uh, two or three quick, really quick questions here. One, did did do we know? Did Philip even know about the secret meetings that the EAC commissioners were having? He's on the EAC board of advisors. Was he aware of the secret meetings with the vendors? Um, Philip found out about the meetings. Not through that channel. That mm-hmm. was through channels that I, you know, I had alerted him and mm-hmm. other concerned parties that the meetings were going on, but mm-hmm. not from the EAC. So he had to learn it from you. As noted at the top of the show, Susan, there's a lot of concern, obviously, about elections and election results right now. Do you get the sense that the EAC understands the fire that they are playing with in allowing wireless modems, despite, you know, cybersecurity experts strong urging to not do so, you know, for the National Institute of, Tech, uh, of uh, Standards and Technology, to, you know, people who have concerns now, you know, in this case, Republicans who have concerns about the results, who point out, hey, there was modems in there, anything could have happened. Do you get the sense that the EAC understands the fire they're playing with in allowing these in an entirely new generation of voting systems that's going to be around for 10, 20 years. I I think they don't. I don't get it. It's mind-blowing to me. You would think that they would want to err on the side of caution. They would want to err on the side of security. And and if there was a really good reason to allow this, then why not have the process out in the open mm-hmm. where they can make the case to the public as to why we think this is a secure way to go? Instead, they, they did the whole thing behind closed doors in a super shady manner. doesn't engender a lot of confidence, but I also I feel like... Uh, you know, it, it it seems to me a lot of you know a lot of just stupidity. Don't assign malice to what could be uh, explained by. Yep. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing stupidity, yep. but I I think it it's foolish to to introduce something like this, which when we already have a, a crisis of confidence in our election systems, we need to be doing everything we can to ensure that they're as secure as possible that they are, and that the process is transparent and open and belonging to the people because these are our elections. We are the people. These are our elections. Yep. Um, and they're doing exactly the opposite. Thank you. And uh, you're asking the federal court to uh, throw out the uh, the changes between the draft and the final version or throw out the entire uh, just, thing and just start the over. changes. Just, just the changes, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of good stuff that was improved in this, but mm-hmm. but the, the, they did make some other changes, which clearly benefited the vendors. For example, there was a ban on al- allowing the vendors to advertise yes. on the ballots that they printed, yes. and that got scrapped in the new version. Yeah. After the- <laughs> I, I know. I saw that. It's like, oh, they're allowed to advertise? That had been banned, and now they're allowed to advertise on the ballots? Good Lord. Now, you can't make it up and you can't come up with any reason why that was not done 
solely for the vendors. Certainly it wasn't for the people. Uh, unbelievable. So glad that you at uh, freespeechforpeople.org and, of course, uh, UC Berkeley's great Philip Stark are on this case. Please come back, Susan Greenhall. Let us know how things proceed if they do. You can find uh, Susan on the Twitters. A great uh, a follow, by the way, on Twitter at S.E. Greenhall. And you can find uh, their lawsuit at freespeechforpeople.org. And, of course, you can find uh, FS. Uh, free speech for people at FSFP on the Twitter. Susan, really great talking to you, and uh, good luck with the lawsuit. Thank you so much. You bet. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break here, our closing few minutes. And, you know, we started the show with uh, singing the praises of the Democrats for coming up with this infrastructure program, but that is not all that they did (laughs) on Wednesday. I don't know what has gotten into them. But we'll find out right after this break. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. But I would not feel so all alone. Everybody must get stoned. Welcome back. To the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I do not know what is going on with Democrats. Uh, <laughs> first, it was the wildly popular and progressive COVID relief bill. You know, they sent $1,400 checks to everyone, decreased health care premiums, included checks for $300 per child each month to most families with young kids starting this month. Uh, now they've got this massive, already very popular and very progressive $4 trillion infrastructure package with expansions to Medicare and clean energy that they seem to now have a trajectory to pass. And then there was this from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Wednesday. The war on drugs has really been a war on people, particularly people of color. The Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act would help put an end to the unfair targeting and treatment of communities of color by removing cannabis from the federal list of controlled substances. This is an idea, not all, it's not just an idea whose time has come, it's long overdue. What is going on with these people? What? <laughs> they're finally waking up? If they keep doing this, they're going to get reelected. Do they realize that? <laughs> they should be very careful. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pr- proposed legislation on Wednesday to legalize marijuana at the federal level. According to CNBC Today, a move aimed at easing restrictive drug policies that have disproportionately impacted communities of color and the poor. The Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, or CAOA, a very catchy acronym, (laughs) if you are stoned, uh, that would remove marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act and introduce regulation to tax cannabis products. The proposal would also finally expunge federal records of nonviolent cannabis offenders and allow people serving time in federal prison for nonviolent marijuana crimes to petition for resentencing. Schumer said uh, during a press conference that uh, this is, quote, monumental. At long last, he said, we are taking steps in the Senate to right the wrongs of the failed war on drugs. He unveiled the draft along with Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, and Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey. 
Booker said uh, for decades, our federal government has waged a war on drugs that has unfairly impacted low income communities and communities of color. While red and blue states across the country continue to legalize marijuana, the federal government continues to lag woefully behind. The plan would also create a trust fund from new cannabis tax revenue in order to invest in programs for communities most affected by the, quote, failed war on drugs, according to a draft of the bill. The plan to decriminalize marijuana will likely face a contentious battle in the Senate, however, according to CNBC. I'm not so sure if that's right, but we'll see. Uh, They say it's generally opposed by Republicans and some moderate Democrats. It has yet to be uh, endorsed by President Joe Biden. It will require 60 votes. So you can't just pass it through reconciliation. 60 votes will be required. That means they got uh, Democrats will have to. If, assuming all the Democrats come along, they'll have to come up with 10 Republicans. But frankly, if the Republicans are smart, they will jump on board on this, lest the Democrats be seen as the only ones supporting this wildly popular and, yes, long overdue idea. So far, 37 states and the District of Columbia have legalized medical use of cannabis. 18 states and D.C. have legalized recreational pot. But the drug, insanely enough, is still illegal under federal law. Yeah, it makes no sense. Public polling shows 70 percent of the American uh, public supports legalizing pot. Then again, they're all probably stoned and misunderstood (laughs) the question when the pollster called. So I don't know. Dems better be careful, though. If they keep doing these popular and progressive things, they may just end up increasing their majorities in uh, the House and Senate next year. But they've got plenty of time to screw that up between now and then. No doubt. All right. Got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Susan Greenhall of freespeechforpeople.org. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us, stoned or otherwise. (laughs) Uh, If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. All of which is made possible only by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. If you like what you hear, if you want us to keep going, please consider stopping by and donating. You can send me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Bye.